Hey, hey, everyone. This is Savante, and on this episode of Dear College Students, I have a very, very, very special guest with me this morning. He is not only... Well, I, you know what? I'm just going to let him speak for himself. I have Ed Bennett the fourth, who I'm doing a podcast with this morning. This is a long-distance podcast. He is a doctoral, sto- uh, a doctoral student at Florida State University. So without further ado, Ed... Tell the people a little bit about you. Good morning, Savante, and thank you for having me on this morning. It's a great privilege and honor to be able to have this opportunity on your platform to discuss the very important things. Um, uh, as Monte indicated, I'm Edward Bennett IV. Um, I am a native of a very small rural area by the name of Parrish, Florida. My goal is to put Parrish, Florida on the map as it has never been placed before. Um, I am an alumnus of Florida and in university and Florida State University, where I earned the bachelor's of social work and the master's of social work, respectively. Um, currently a PhD student um, at Florida State University, where I am studying the psychosocial barriers that are impeding parental engagement in high poverty and low achieving schools. Uh, prior to this journey as a doctoral student, I served as a visiting instructor at the, the Department of Social Work. <clears throat> within the University of FAMU. Um, I taught over in the undergrad program, provided academic advising and mentorship, and oversaw some of the interns in the school settings. Um, So before entering higher education at FAMU, I was in the school social worker um, in the school district of Manatee County, uh, inpatient psychiatric social worker within the Burlington, Florida area, um, along with the director of capital eating guide right programs um, uh, in Sarasota, uh, Florida. Um, after completing the PhD, I desired to serve as a, a research professor and consultant with school districts and universities to help ameliorate the phenomena of poor family engagement um, in these educational settings. In all, I'm thankful and very Glad to have this opportunity to speak with you this morning, Savante, to help the emerging researchers, we are called the current college students, emerging researchers, because we need as many black and brown folks as we can to enter PhD and doctoral programs to provide research on topics that are very important for our culture. Uh, So that's that. (laughs) And Ed... Again, I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast. And I first want to ask you, what inspired you to pursue not only your bachelor's, but also your master's and now your doctorate in social work? Sure, sure. Um, Social work is a calling. You know, we would often hear throughout our bachelorette and master's level education. Social work is a calling that happens, you know, it's not necessarily selecting a major, albeit those students with exposure to social workers, you know, whether it be a family, friend, or a family member, those students may see what a social worker is in their earlier days and want to become one, but for me, I didn't have that exposure. I had to figure this out on my own, so I admitted to FAMU as a professional MBA student uh, straight out of high school. I engaged in a semester or two of life in SDI. That was not for me. Uh, so I visited the Career Center to figure out what it is, what it was that needed to happen in order for God to use me uh, throughout life. So 
Uh, he had a career aptitude test and social work. It was confirmed, you know. I, I worked large on confirmations, you know, on signs and stuff like that. So it was confirmed that social work was like one of my top choices based upon my personality and my response to those questions. So that's how I got in the door with social work. Um, while working for a baccalaureate degree, I was frequently told by <clears throat> individuals in the field, professors, yes, speakers, and individuals that I may have been following on YouTube at that time. Was YouTube even? Yeah, YouTube stopped back then. So, yeah, just getting exposure to those folks that are saying, hey, unless you want to push papers, do a lot of uh, assessments and note-taking and being told what to do, get your master's degree. I didn't think twice about it. I immediately, after I graduated, uh, three and a half years with a bachelor's degree, enrolled in um, <clears throat> the master's program at Florida State where I studied in the chemical concentration, which would put me on track at that time to become a therapist. So, you know, once again, just going with the flow, going with the flow, okay, I'm working on my master's now, I don't quite know what's next. Got the master's, went into the field, and saw a lot of different things which led me to the doctoral degree. Certain things that I was exposed to and wanted to solve or help um, form a solution, you know, I was pretty much told, hey, you can't do this without having evidence-based uh, practice or empirically-based studies that are backing what you're doing. So I said, okay, I got some of this empirical-based stuff. I put myself on track to enroll in a doctoral program so that I can be that person producing this empirically-sound research that in turn would allow certain programs and certain interventions to be empirically sound or backed by research. Um, so yeah, that's that, that's kind of how I am at this level I am now, you know, being led by spirit and uh, by what feels right to me. <clears throat> wow, that that is amazing. Um, I definitely can say it sounds like you were taking heat to your calling for sure. For sure. Yeah, yeah. And what are some of the adversity and also some of the failures that you had to overcome in order to get to where you are today? So exposure to the housing crash back in the 2000, between 2007, 2012, whenever that ended. My family was adversely impacted, you know, by one of these adjustable rate mortgages. So while working towards the bachelor's degree, working through a lot of adjustment type stuff at that time in my personal life. I had a family back home that were working through this whole foreclosure piece. Thank God that we were able to keep our home. Um, but at that time, it was definitely a very stressful type of experience. But I just tried to pull and extract the lessons out of each adverse situation. So I would say the financial aspect was an adversity that I had to overcome in order to be at the level I am now because I could have easily left college went home, worked, never returned to college. <laughs> right. That would not have been an opportune thing to do. So <clears throat> just learning from, you know, the past uh, decisions, past mistakes, past ignorance, and I do not say ignorant in a malicious way at all, um, of, you know, those in my family and those that are around me to kind of learn from those mistakes. Because as we know, I can't quite cope who said this, but a wise man learns from the mistakes of others, while a more wise man learns from those mistakes and decisions and applies change to his life. So, 
definitely the financial aspect was an adversity. Confidence, self-confidence was another adversity that I had to overcome. And that was something that I actively worked through, even while working as a therapist, working with folks who had exceptionally low self-esteem, self um self-respect and all of that stuff so um had to overcome that because the imposter syndrome is real that voice that gets in your head saying man this thing's for you what are you doing why are you wasting your time doing that is real and you know, by the grace of god through frequent prayer and meditation i'm able to continue to work towards that versus seeing it you know it's something that can stop there tomorrow it's a journey something that has to he worked through because it was not overnight that where confidence and all of that stuff um, came about. And I'm surprised that I even mentioned that because I rarely talk about that, especially in uh, on public forum. But mm-hmm. yeah, we're just flowing with energy and just flowing with, 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 with what the heart feels. It's right to share with students at this time because this isn't about me. This isn't about you. This is about students and the listeners that are you know, listening and hopefully that <clears throat> piece of information uh, Exactly. And when you're talking about imposter syndrome, I, yeah, I was just talking about imposter syndrome because I didn't know that that existed until I looked it up and I'm like, oh my gosh. And he is correct. It is that little voice in your head telling you that basically you can't do it. You're no good, et cetera, et cetera. So (laughs) yeah, it, it does. It does. Honestly, even, and I don't believe that it is in the DSM, but it, it's something that exists. <laughs> um, right, right, right. And I want to go on to ask you, what inspired you to get involved with doing research, focusing on psychosocial barriers, impeding parental involvement in high poverty and low achieving schools? Sure, sure. So my tenure uh, while working as a school social worker pretty much honed that research interest. That pretty much solidified and was the time that I needed to move forward, say it. A PhD is for you. An EDD would be cute. An EDD would allow you to work and save time. But that PhD ultimately would give you that full spectrum of research tools that is needed. So, so while working as a school social worker, I saw a lot of things that you know broke my heart that I personalized. Probably because these students and families that I worked with looked a lot like me in these right. high poverty and low achieving schools. So... Um, we can talk about you know the whole evidence-based practice um this is the job i was trying to implement certain things based upon you know what worked in prior settings what worked uh, in other states so i was told okay yeah these have to be empirically based studies evidence-based studies you can you know something this has to be something that's been tested and used with populations and sample sizes so if it's not that, you can't do it because you don't want to face a liability. <laughs> right. Um, so that that was the straw that broke the camel's back that pushed me into this specific area of research looking at the parents regarding student achievement because there's a lot of research currently existing saying, yes, if the parents are involved, the students are likely to have better educational, behavioral, and attendance rates and habits. If the parents are not involved, it's the contrary. There's going to be behavioral issues. There's going to be a high likelihood. Let me rephrase that. There's going to be a high likelihood of behavioral issues, um, poor grades, and you know high absenteeism. So, 
just by seeing what's already there and seeing the gap in research and the lack of studies that make it to the lives of the parents um, that pushed me and is continuing to push me to help solve and bring some support to a certain, you know, um, answer or solution, you know, for familial involvement, parental and familial involvement in these said schools. Did I ask your question with that one, brother? You definitely did. And I also want to go into, um, I'm just saying this as well as a side note. And a lot of people don't understand um, your status in society also plays a role um, when it comes down to kids as well. Like, for example, I wrote a paper dealing with the correlation between low socioeconomic status households and increased depression among African-American adolescents. And what we don't realize is even the environmental factors that really play a role in a child's life in order to either help help them achieve what they want to or impede what they want to. You know what I mean? It is, it's crazy. Like, it's not just biological. It's not just social, but it's environmental as well. Like all these factors just continue to play a role in a child's life without us even realizing it. Right, right. And, and the part that really is unfortunate, brother, as you know that these children and these students are a product of their environment, which really unfortunate. What you're saying, these risk factors continue to compound. So we may see a kid, you know, in elementary school, that, you know, has some emotional issues or attachment type stuff going on, whether it be reattachment or other types of attachment. So those things continue to compound and manifest in forms of behavior, in forms of poor self-esteem, in forms of, you know, low achieving, low academic functioning. Um, and then they get, get to high school. Uh, they're probably more vulnerable, I'm sorry, middle school, and they're probably more vulnerable to bullying, um, <clears throat> gang involvement, and all those things. So, the risk factors and just how they compound, you know, upon one another as the child progresses through the various lifespans is just very, very sad, you know? It it definitely is. And even with the kid, I, I feel like we're, we're going off topic a little bit, but this is good because this, this is something that people need to hear. And this isn't just for African-American adolescents, but this can be for any type of children, even the ones who are doing the bullying. That shows something about the way that they were raised and the way that they were growing up as well, because it's, it shows more of their insecurities, which they tend to, um, you know, showing their insecurities is why they get involved in the bullying and not doing good in school, et cetera, et cetera, because as a child, you never know if that child was neglected at the time, which is why they started doing the behavioral things that they started doing. Right, right, right. You don't know those stories. They come with, each child comes with, you know, their own story. And yeah, absolutely. So it's like an awful cycle, you know. So they, they end up being the bully versus being the, the victim, you know. So it's, ah. Uh, there's some stuff that, yeah. Yeah, me, look, that's a, that's a whole nother episode for another day right there. That, that's what me and you going to have to sit down in person and just sit there and talk about that one. Because... Definitely, definitely. Look, we got to get on a research project together for that one right there. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but I wanted to go into asking you, how are you able to manage all the activities that you do? Because you do so much. So how are you able to keep that balance? 
Uh, work in progress right there. Uh, so I'm five weeks going into my sixth week in the doctoral program, along with working as an adjunct instructor with FAMU, along with being active in my fraternity chapter outside your nukes. Um, it's a lot. So right now I'm just prioritizing. Where I'm looking at this, I have one shot to achieve this PhD with all expenses paid for. All right. So I have to take full advantage of the opportunity of a lifetime within the lifetime of the opportunity. And I have to quote Eric Thomas, PhD on that because that's his quote. Um, and that really resonates with me. So whenever I'm wanting to put another task over <clears throat> the main priorities, I have to think about that. We have an opportunity of a lifetime here. The cap is always gonna be here. Um, you have a strong relationship with your alma mater. That's going to be here. Um, so it's prioritizing. It's like, <clears throat> what's more important at this time? You know, if you decide to make this decision here at this day and time, how is that going to impact your other activities within 24 hours, within a week, within a month, so on and so forth? So just looking at it in that perspective and over the range of time and how certain activities would be. Uh, I can't find the word I want to use um, impacted adversely you know if I shun away from certain activities you know wow and I know um, in your bio that you mentioned that you were a inpatient psychiatric social worker so what was that like and can you just tell the podcast listeners a little bit about what that is because even me I'm kind of incompetent when it comes down to um an inpatient psychiatric social worker. So just enlighten yeah. us all a little bit about that. Absolutely, absolutely. Now that can look different depending on your setting. I did my undergrad internship at the state hospital there in Chattahoochee, Florida. So that's probably the most chronic and more severe inpatient setting that a social worker could work in. Uh, but that prepared me for anything and everything. And I mean that literally. People see the resonance that you work at the state hospital, you are hired. What do you want to make? Um, well, my uh, professional experience was in Bradenton, Florida, at uh, a few institutions, a for-profit and a non-profit. So my job was initially the, uh, a case manager, and that was before I got the master's degree. That was a lot of note-taking, following the psychiatrist around, linking the patient with resources, and pretty much case management and resource type management services with the client, making sure that once they were discharged from their Baker Act or Marchman Act, um, we'll talk about that in a quick second. Mm -hmm. um, so when they're discharged, make sure that they had a place to go to. So the Baker Act is the state of Florida's policy and law that protects people that are having thoughts of hurting themselves or others. It also protects people that may have attempted suicide by whatever method, whether it be by self-assault or overdose or anything like that. So it protects those folks for a minimum of 72 hours uh, in a Baker Act receiving facility, while the Marshman Act does the same for individuals that are having substance abuse type complications and disorders. Uh, the Marshman Act protects them from, you know, drinking or using drugs that could cause great bodily harm on themselves or others. So that's what those two in a nutshell are. So 
Uh, once the bachelor's was earned, uh, once the master's rather, once the master's was earned, I started working as a therapist. So that's where the fun started. It was very, very fun at that time, being able to work hand in hand with these folks in crisis mode, giving them gems, giving them tangible information that they can apply to their current lives um, moving forward. So, you know, after discharge. So, you know, biopsychosocials were my best friend at that time, in addition to group therapy modalities, individual therapy and family therapy sessions um, with our with our clients. So, based upon my experiences, that's kind of what my, you know, experience as an inpatient psychiatric social worker looked like. <clears throat> wow. And, you know, going from that, I know that in order to work in these different types of environments, you have you have to always have like some type of value or some type of quote that you go by on a daily basis in order to keep you motivated. So can you just talk about some of those or elaborate on them for me? Absolutely. Honesty. Well, first of all, knowing who you are, knowing yourself. Because if a person is going through a situation with all of this crisis happening around them, they could easily get lost in the grand scheme of everything that's happening, whether it be the crisis from the client, whether it be complications with colleagues and co-workers. It's just so much happening. So it's very important to know who you are throughout this entire process. If you are some, you know, um, no, I'm not going to get into that part right now. We can talk about that another time. <laughs> but yeah, knowing who you are is, is most important. Having a strong foundation, in my sense, a strong foundation, what that looks like for me is my spirituality, it's my faith. So that's something that kept me grounded on a daily basis um, while working in those settings. I was a little younger then, so I was right. praying. I went praying every day, so. You know, fresh out of college, we have happy hours. So, we have the car, you know, having all of that going on. God still loves us, right? Hey, <laughs> um, <laughs> you right about that? Yeah, yeah, I got to be honest about this uh, in order to help you know, the listeners. So, just finding that balance. You know, I was playing piano, singing in church. So, I, by default, I had to be there every Sunday. But the church really living in me with the spirit really dwelling in me at that time. Different conversation. But it was in me, you know, that foundation was there, whether that foundation was a little shaky or a little cracked, the foundation was there. So, you know, when things were rough at work with the client, with a colleague, I was grounded, okay? Um, so yeah, my faith and my spirituality is huge for me. Another value, honesty, integrity, doing the right thing when no one is looking, you know, if you screw up, own it. Yeah. <laughs> Lying about it only causes further cohesion in your life, in your relationships, in the job setting, it lying and being dishonest is only leads to problems down the road. So as we may speak with 45, no pun intended, it's all gonna catch up with yeah. uh, <laughs> Wow. That yeah. that's that's definitely powerful. And before we run out of time, I'm for one, I'm going to say I'm I'm getting you back on another episode. I have to. If I have to drive up to Florida State, I will because I'm yes, I I love this episode. I'm definitely having you back. But before we end, I have to ask you, what is one piece of advice that you would give to a college student who is thinking about throwing in the towel and just saying forget it all? 
Think about how that decision will impact you a week later. So one week post dropout, what is that going to look like? What is that? How are you going to feel? Just what do we call that in therapy? I can't remember. Maybe self, um, uh, visualization. There we go. So visualize it. Quiet place, quiet space, calm atmosphere, maybe some essential oils running. Just visualize it. Okay, if I do this, what is this going to look like in a week? What is this going to look like in a month? What is this going to look like in a year, two years? So as you reflect on that and, you know, you're going to start grinding because you're going to be, like, nervous. You're not going to know what to do. Go through the process. Trust the process. Stay in school. Do not throw in the towel. Things will improve, as I share with myself. I went through a lot of financial stuff, not knowing whether my folks were going to be, you know, with a home or without a home. Speak with the process. Trust the process and just have a strong sense of spirituality. Can't tell you what to place your faith or your spirituality teaches in to find something that works for you. Jesus Christ works for me. Um, find what works for you and uh, use it and apply it, you know? Wow. Ed, I, I want to thank you so much because I know you are busy. I know we've been trying to schedule, reschedule, schedule, reschedule. Um, I I really appreciate you more than what you think. Um, thank you so much for being on this podcast. I, I, I appreciate this a lot. Anytime, brother. Anytime. You, have to, it, you know, to God be the glory. And I appreciate you for allowing me to be on your platform to share knowledge. And yeah, anytime you want me back, feel free to reach out to me and we can definitely make it happen. Definitely. And to all my listeners, I want to say thank you for continuing to listen and support my episode. It, it means a lot to me more than you all think um, that I'm just helping somebody. If this episode at least helped, inspired or motivated one person, then it's done its job. Even if it's just one person, it has done its job. And I hope you all just continue to like, subscribe, and continue listening to your favorite episodes. And I hope you all have a great day.